Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we speak with writer and journalist Drew Richards. Drew just published his book, Every Human Intention, based on his work with the Japan Times from 2011 to 2016. One of the topics that he explores in his book is that of the African community in Japan and how they navigate the country's immigration system, job markets and blended families. It offers a fascinating outsider account of life in Japan its social hierarchies and how policies work to perpetuate rather than alleviate them. Drew, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I've really enjoyed reading your book and I think unknown to many, including myself, it's become clear that there is a sizable Nigerian community in Japan and they face many struggles, uh, including with immigration, uh, making a living. And you've reported on these struggles for, I think, close to a decade for the Japan Times. And you discuss particularly your insights into the Nigerian community in the first part of of the book. So maybe to kick us off for this conversation, how did you come to engage with this community? And also what compelled you to document their lives? Well, it was really by accident. I was new to Japan. I was there studying literature and I arrived in 2010 doesn't seem like that long ago, but even by that time, Japan had become sort of a tourist theme park. I mean, there were, there were much fewer visitors at that time than there are now, but much of what you see as a new arrival in Japan and someone who doesn't yet speak the language and who isn't deeply involved in, in the culture uh, seems uh, really um, shallow and, and uninteresting. And one of the few really meaningful experiences I had was being out and about and seeing, especially in the red light districts, people from all over the world trying to find customers for the businesses that they they worked for. And, uh, you know, oftentimes those are people who are visibly African and, and the interactions that they had with often foreign people, but also Japanese people on the street seemed so fraught and strange and varied and diverse and unscripted that I wanted to know more about them. And so in a totally personal capacity, I just started getting to know people in those neighborhoods who who worked on the street trying to find customers for those hostess clubs and those bars. And eventually I wrote one article about it for the English language newspaper in in Tokyo. And that article uh, did well enough according to the web analytics that it gave the editor who commissioned it enough leverage to uh, bring me on board to continue writing about that community, primarily the African community uh, indefinitely. And so I did it for about six years and then I got a book contract from a New York publisher and I left the newspaper and continued to write about that community, but in the context of uh, writing the book. In reading the first part of your book, uh, much of the exploration, if you will, of the Nigerian community is centered around Prosper, an Igbo man from the southeast of Nigeria, who works in the night scene, which you've just described. And you start the book by describing what happens as a 2011 earthquake strikes. Now, and as you narrate your story, you link to experiences of other Nigerian immigrants as well. And one of the issues that you explore is the immigration system and also the general, I would say, negative attitudes towards immigrants 
certainly those who are economically disadvantaged or from certain parts of the world. What are some of the things that really struck you or stayed with you over your six years of reporting on these issues from within the Nigerian community? I think the most emotionally complicated experiences for me, and, and those are the ones that stay with you, of course, were the experiences of getting to know these um, blended families would be the wrong word, but these you know families that were the product of cross-cultural marriages, because Japan is a difficult place to normalize your immigration status. And so uh, getting married becomes very important for people who want to stay there uh, for a long time if they don't have access to types of employment that conventionally allow for a path to residency. So many of those marriages turned out in ways that were really life affirming to see just as a human being, you know, um, because they remind you of the fact that people from two very different cultures with very different types of experiences can have really wonderful and deep relationships. But there were also um, a large number of, of instances when getting to know people in that community meant getting to know broken families and, and broken families that had seemed very hopeful at one time. And Japan handles custody of children of divorce in a very different way from most Western countries. A sole custody system is in place there. Culturally speaking, most Japanese people think that it's unfair to children for there to be a, some kind of joint custody arrangement because it will confuse them about who they are and what their parentage is. So oftentimes, men I knew, and obviously it was predominantly men in that community, had lost contact with their children and, and their former spouses, even if they were on pretty good terms, wouldn't want to let them see their children. And in many cases, there were elaborate fictions invented uh, in order to explain to the children why they weren't in communication uh, with their fathers. And this was all sort of normalized uh, or often was normalized in a way that was really tricky for me as a Western person and as somebody who often was doing most of his reporting from the, the, the men's point of view to accept and understand and explore in a detached way that would be useful to um, the African community and to readers of the newspaper uh, in understanding what life was like in that community in a non-judgmental way. And thinking about why Nigerian, mostly men, as you say, came to Japan in the first place, what were the, the main motivations for men to make that journey and to start a life in such a faraway place? Well, it's a really interesting um, example of how people think ideologically about decisions they make economically. And it really puts the lie to the notion that anyone is exclusively uh, a so-called economic migrant. I ask people about their motives for coming. And almost all of them would say, well, you have to understand that Biafra had lost the Nigerian civil war and my generation was born or coming of age around that time. And so it was very clear to us that we did not have um, economic or political prospects in our country. And we began to think about how we could expatriate. And they would point to the enormous size of the Igbo diaspora as evidence of that being a broadly social phenomenon. And all of that is true, of course, but when you ask them about the timing of their expatriation and you looked at what they'd done before they expatriated, many, if not most of them, had made a pretty good go of things in terms of livelihood and starting lives in Nigeria until successive military dictatorships in, in the 90s really made it extremely difficult to do that. In other words, until the collapse of the Nigerian economic project, not the social or civic project, was much further along. 
And so in that light, the decision looks much more purely economic. There weren't enough economic prospects in Nigeria for them. But in their minds, it was a deeply ideological decision. And it was almost inevitable after um, Biafra lost the civil war in Nigeria in 1970. And I think their feeling was that it, those reasons were indistinguishable. And, and to the extent that they had left at a time when the economic question was more important, that was largely a coincidence. After they got to Japan, I think most of them thought they would work there for a year or two, save enough money to um, start a small business in Nigeria, probably by taking some cheap goods from Japan back to Nigeria and shipping containers, and would go home, would use that money that they'd saved in a factory job in Japan to start their lives in Nigeria. And why Japan? Why that specific country? Well, I think there are two different answers to that question. And again, they sort of coexist and they argue with each other. One is that a lot of them found it easier to get short-term entry visas to Japan than for the US or the UK or other places where they felt that there wouldn't be a language barrier, obviously. But the other element of it is that the part of Nigeria that most of them are from really values entrepreneurship and values uh, light industry and manufacturing. And historically, that's been part of a real pull yourself up by your bootstraps narrative. That narrative was especially important to them uh, in the wake of the Civil War after many of the major cities in that part of the country had been destroyed uh, by the Nigerian government's military and bombing campaigns. And Japan was at the tail end of its bubble economy at that time. And Japan's bubble economy was built on this, you know, narrative of the Japanese miracle, this notion that the entire nation had pulled itself out of the rubble of World War II by their bootstraps. And so they're actually, even within the small part of Nigeria, where most of these migrants came from, two separate and very important cities that were called by the time most of these immigrants started coming to Japan in the early 90s the Japan of Africa. So the myth of Japan as a place where you can work your way out of poverty uh, was, a really, uh, was really prevalent in that part of Nigeria and really culturally important to them. So it was simultaneously easier to get to than some other places and also had a kind of um, cultural mystique associated with it. Interesting. And so if that notion of Japan being a place where you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, as you say, and, and that also being something that's a value in the communities where these Nigerian men come from. What is the pressure on these migrants when they come to Japan to do well, to show that you know they're making money, that they're able to send money back home in remittances maybe? And is there a shame also attached to if that's not happening, not just within the Nigerian community in Japan, but also with respect to people they've left back home? Certainly the family structure for a lot of, or the kinship structure for a lot of the people I knew, uh, put them at the head of their families and, uh, you know, as male providers, and they needed to send a fair amount of money back to Nigeria. Many of them were also responsible for bringing cousins, younger brothers, and so forth uh, into the business in Japan, trying to find ways to arrange visas for them, and so forth. It's a community that is pretty tough to live in and pretty paranoid in my experience because of the history of involvement. And this is a se separate subject that we can contextualize better. But for the moment, I'll just say, you know, that community had a lot of trouble with law enforcement. And so as a result, 
are people always kind and friendly to each other in that community? I mean, between fellow Igbo people or Igbo and Edo people from Nigeria? No, sometimes they can be pretty bitter and mistrustful. But I don't think there is, in that particular community, a, a tremendous amount of stigma attached to financial failure because it's such a difficult place to make a living. It's so complicated from a cultural and linguistic perspective. There are so many obstacles and pitfalls that I think when someone genuinely fails to thrive or has a really hard time, the community takes seriously the need to minimize the consequences to the degree that it's possible and those kinship networks to the extent that they exist in Japan and they do you know civic associations there are often organized by down to the village level of origin they do what they can for for those people to try to to soften uh, their fall and that's especially true if those people have already been involved in some of those civic organizations and have been paying dues to them and and so forth and with respect to families back home, do people maybe stay longer in Japan just to make things work out, make most use of opportunities? They all stayed longer universally. And, and I think most of the people I knew well felt that they got stuck uh, in one way or another. The reasons were not always sad and they weren't always as simple as they couldn't earn as much money as they thought. But, you know, often it was simply that they met and fell in love with a Japanese woman and decided to get married partly because they were in love and partly because they needed the visa. And so that happened quicker than they thought. And then most Nigerians from the Southeast part of the country, Igbo, Edo people, uh, they value having large families. So of course, when you're married, you start to have kids. And those factory jobs that many of them worked when they first got to Japan, and perhaps even nightlife work or selling a, a apparel and, and the things they did later in the beginning were fairly stable and promising, perhaps not compared to the kind of employment that a Japanese person tends to expect, but certainly compared to the expectations of uh, these people who'd come thinking they'd just work in a factory for a while. So having obtained these marriages, having started families, having found employment that was surprisingly stable, although in many cases not entirely legal, I think a lot of people in that community, or at least they reported to me later on, had felt sort of in the middle period of their expatriation, that they would be able to stay in Japan for quite a long time and have a good life there and then make a really, if they decided to return to Nigeria, make a really controlled, gradual U-turn. Things didn't really turn out that way, unfortunately, but there was a period when many felt optimistic. And then to the extent that some never felt optimistic, you know, for them, probably the, the trap, as many of them would describe it, was more purely financial. Yeah, they just they needed to try to earn and save more money. Just want to come back briefly to what you mentioned about being involved in illegal activities or criminal activities and just make sure that we have the space to contextualize this. It comes up in your book as well that even though most of the Nigerians coming to Japan would never engage in criminal activities back home, somehow they end up doing so when they are in Japan. How is that? What happens? It's really complicated. You know, there are a number of reasons for it, but I think I have to sort of, first of all, be the community's voice and say what, what they always say, um, which is it's not a Nigeria problem or a Nigerian problem. It's a Japan problem. And what they mean by that is that other economically vulnerable 
expatriate communities from nations that are not near Nigeria on a map and don't have much in common with Nigeria culturally are also embroiled in these kinds of problems of widespread criminal activity and widespread entanglements with law enforcement as a result. And it's because Japan is a really tough place to be poor. It's a really tough place to be part of the contingent labor force. And perhaps more importantly, Japan, its immigration policies tend to encourage the formation of a migrant underclass to do really difficult, dirty work. And if you're really at the bottom of that ladder um, for socioeconomic reasons and reasons of, of, of the way that certain nationalities are treated in Japan, involvement in criminal activity is one of the, the collective or community risks or hazards or vulnerabilities that's inevitably going to manifest itself. You mentioned in general, Japan is a hard place to be poor. So stepping away from the Nigerian community for a moment and and picking on your experience in Japan for such a long time, what is life like when when you don't have enough economic resources, financial means, when you are living in poverty, if you will? How are people in poverty looked at, talked about or, or treated more generally within Japan? Well, it really varies by group. And, you know, I think one of the things that was really interesting for me to see when I was reporting on this community is that I think there was a sense among a lot of readers of my coverage that um, Nigerians living in Japan would identify with the difficulties of, for example, Black Americans living in Japan or African Americans living in Japan. But they didn't really, I mean, not the members of the community I knew, because they identified their own struggles as being, of course, ethnic and and in nature and based on nationality and, and involved in issues of racism. But by far, they saw poverty as the more important obstacle. And so you would find that they, it was easier for them to relate to and to form relationships with um, other vulnerable groups in Japan, even groups that had access to more support from the state. So for example, Zainichi Korean or ethnically Korean people living in Japan who have this sort of semi-citizen uh, status and are not fully enfranchised, but who are you know, culturally for all intents and purposes Japanese, their families have been there for multiple generations. Um, and uh, also Budakumin, you know, the sort of lower caste of Japanese society. And that's based on many generations of, of religious belief about uh, the uncleanliness of engaging in, in certain professions. And so those are groups of people who tend to live in particular parts of particular cities and have access to only particular professions and are sort of excluded from others and whose ability to shape their lives in Japan are, are limited by those hard or generally insurmountable social and quasi-ethnic constraints on how they can demonstrate their intelligence and their worthiness. And that was a narrative that most of the Nigerian people I knew in Japan related to much more readily than the narrative of, for example, a Black American or perhaps uh, you know, um, a person of color from the UK uh, coming to Japan to take a job or teach English or something of that nature. How does this link to maybe the views of so the middle classes in Japan, do they also recognize this sort of stratified society whereby groups at the bottom end really struggle to, to move up or have access to jobs and supports that would allow them to do and live better lives? 
or are they sort of lulled in a false sense of thinking that Japan is a society of of equal opportunity where everybody can prosper if they if they want to? Well, the myth is certainly there. The myth that Japan is a very economically homogenous society, but I think um, increasingly it's falling apart, and it's falling apart under the pressure of Japan aging so quickly and becoming such an elderly and gray nation. And it's very difficult to keep people propped up to a degree that allows them to avoid brushing against the edge of poverty when they're older and they don't have children or don't have many children or don't have children who are available to help them. And the pension system is under so much strain. So I think there's a generational process taking place now that is leading uh, much larger numbers of people to consider the possibility that their individual families or perhaps their parents will be affected by the problems of poverty. When the institutions of a government or a society that interact with and attempt to minimize or shall we say at least attempt to manage poverty tend to push that stratification of social classes in a certain direction, uh, it can often be more about hiding the effects of poverty than really alleviating them. Japan is a society that has evolved a number of institutional and administrative mechanisms for not only managing or minimizing poverty, but also doing a, a fairly good job of keeping it hidden from the majority of people who constitute the mainstream of public discourse. And so one way that sociologists have put this is that Japan is a society of high responsibility, but low accountability. And so what they mean is that the Japanese government has done a fairly good job consistently throughout the modern period or the contemporary period anyway, of making most people feel that the government is taking care of most people. However, if you feel that that's not true, or if you feel that it's important that people who aren't being taken care of are taken care of better in the future, the mechanisms for developing some transparency about how things actually work and trying to change them are pretty limited. So that, that is a trade or an exchange uh, in, in the Japanese social contract that sociologists have commented on. As interesting as everything that you have observed and um, researched in the past few years is, I'd also like to ask you about how you how you do this. It's interesting that you've come into a society and you have engaged with a certain group, a certain community that is outside of your links, if you will. So you are not from Japan, nor are you from Southeast Nigeria, yet you are reporting on uh, this community within Japan. How did you go about reporting this with integrity, with, with honesty as an outsider. Can you say something about your experiences in reporting on the issue and how you felt about telling other people's stories without really being embedded in them because you're an outsider? Well, I guess there's a personal answer to that. And then there's an, an intellectual or ethical answer to that. And, and the personal answer to that is that when I was growing up, I, I essentially grew up at my mother's office and my mother was an attorney and she was a poor people's attorney in Washington, DC. And, um, and none of her clients looked like me. None of the problems she dealt with were problems that I dealt with on a daily basis. None of the problems she dealt with on behalf of those um, people. And so the template of living in a city and asking yourself who's vulnerable and what's my relationship to their vulnerability and what's my role in their vulnerability under the assumption that that people don't aren't born and don't live with the deserving to be more vulnerable than other people 
is a really natural assumption for me. It's, it's, it's been present since my childhood. And so there wasn't a lot of thinking or even very many assumptions that went into uh, my decision to try to place, uh, to, to try to act in a way that would give people in that community the opportunity to put their concerns into print more than they previously had. It never felt like a really momentous or important or serious decision. It just felt like an extension of where I'd come from and, and what I'd seen when I was young. Um, the ethical answer is that I was conscious from the beginning of being an outsider. And the most concrete thing I can point to in that regard is that I told my editor I'd do it for a limited time to build the beat, to establish to get readers of the newspaper used to the idea that they were going to see coverage of this community regularly and that it was a priority for the newspaper. And then it was important to hand it off to someone who was closer to that community, ideally someone in that community. But as I think anybody who's paid attention to journalism or publishing or really a wide variety of professions has noticed, there are some really broad foundational socioeconomic questions that will probably need to be addressed before it becomes simple enough or as simple as we'd like it to be to diversify the way that stories in vulnerable communities are told and who's telling them. So we had a really hard time finding someone to, uh, who is closer to that community to pick up where I left off. And in the end, we had to really compromise in terms of what it meant to find someone who was closer to that community. And the results weren't great. I mean, I think that the, the individual who has passed most of the leads and contacts didn't care very much about it, didn't do much with it. And the things that that person did in some cases turned out to be a, a little ethically questionable. Um, so that was frustrating for us, but people who are in a vulnerable financial position often don't want to work for newspapers unless we're talking about, you know, the New York Times or another newspaper that is uh, such a um, prestige employer that the importance of the name can overcome any hesitation that people in that community might have about the fact that the work isn't very well paid and, and it can be pretty, pretty stressful and, and difficult. I, and sort of to zoom out all the way, I've all, I continue to believe in the fundamental value of an outsider account of a community or a culture or a society. But the trouble, of course, is we're living in a moment when you probably see in the mainstream media and through book publishers, even those that work very hard to diversify the authors, their author pool or the authors they publish, you probably see something like, and I can't prove this number, or even that it's on the right track, four outside accounts for every one inside account. And so that's an imbalance that will absolutely need to be corrected and, and will probably result in fewer people who look like me writing books about communities that look like the Nigerian community in Japan. But you know, that's long overdue. And I don't think it will leave us in a place where uh, there are no accounts that come from outside the community. There will just be fewer. Very clear. Uh, Drew, that was very interesting. Is there anything that you'd like to say to our listeners to close the conversation? Um, if you're interested in the book and you buy it, the part of the story about this community that is really most important to me and that I'd love for people to make sure they read comes up in the in, in the afterword of the book. It's an extended investigation of the starvation death of a Nigerian hunger striker in a Japanese detention facility. 
it's important for a whole number of reasons that you'll learn if you're interested in the book and you buy it and you read it. But um, most significantly, almost the entirety of Japan's forthcoming immigration overhaul, and it's, it's a, a very serious one, is based on a fairly high level cover up of important circumstances related to that individual's death. And uh, the cover up was printed as fact by Japan's relatively docile print media. I'm not aware that there's anywhere else you can go for an investigation of what took place other than my book at this time. I would love if people who do read the book pay special attention to that part of it because the name of the person who passed away was suppressed by the government and the media wasn't able to uncover it. And his family, when I spoke to them, were quite upset about that and wanted to be certain that people remembered what his name was and who he really was, uh, which is something else that the government lied about in some fairly defamatory ways after his death. So look for that if you do read the book. Oh, thank you for that reminder. And uh, I think speaks also to what you just said before about sometimes the importance of an outsider telling stories that may otherwise get overlooked or actively hidden. Drew, thank you very much for your insights. It's been really interesting. Thank you for, for making the time. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions of who to invite next or what to focus on in coming episodes, please get in touch. We hope you'll join us again next time.